been a minute since we were in Romans. If you can recall back to February when we started Romans, we kind of gave the overall view uh, a quick four-sermon series through um, the whole book of Romans. And man, we hit it hard. We, we got this overarching view of God's judgment and, and how we all fall short. And yet God, in His goodness... And in His love has provided His Son to be the the payment for our sin that none of us could pay. None of us are righteous. And God paid it Himself. And then as we see that, we see the extravagance of His love and that nothing can separate us from that love. And then He goes on and He talks about this has been the plan ever since the beginning. Even the Israelites who were walking in obedience, they were walking in faith-filled obedience. They were taking hold of the good news of Jesus by faith. And then we went back and we preached slowly through Romans 1. And we got halfway through the book in a couple months, so we'll take our time with Romans. This morning, we're looking uh, at this passage in Romans, but, but I do want to just give you that context again. Of where Paul is, who Paul is, what he's done. This is Paul, verse 1, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's an apostle. He's a proclaimer. What is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, it is a gospel that includes all of us. It's, it's beautiful in the fact that, as we've seen, that this gospel goes not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And in Paul's mind, that is absolutely everyone. You were either Jew or Gentile. No one could not come to God through this gospel, this good news. But this gospel is not about you. It's not about me. We are not the center of this story. The gospel is the good news of God. It is a story about who He is and what He has done in creation and how He has has powerfully displayed Himself in creation. It's a good news about a Redeemer who went and rescued His people Israel out of Egypt, saving them from, from brokenness and sin and destruction and rescued them and brought them into a promised land. And that rescue pointed to an even greater rescue that would come. And Paul points to that rescue in Jesus. This is who Paul is. This is the the gospel that he is declaring. And so even as we get into verse 18 through 23, where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning, you have to remember that Paul has already laid out, listen, in humility, he comes and he proclaims who God is. It's not his story, but it's a story that has captured his heart with such ferocity that he can't do anything but proclaim it. That is his whole life goal. And here's the deal. What we find out is that if that's true for Paul, it's actually true for all of us. That by grace you have been rescued and redeemed, and so your life is no longer yours. You've been bought with a price, and what we're going to see today is the price that you've been bought with. What has God done that would rescue Paul in such a way that he would say, I am a servant of God. I am going to, uh, I'm called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He goes on in Romans 1-7. through So we know who Paul is. Who is he talking to? He says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has this incredible love for these people. 
He hasn't, he, we don't think that he's met them. Maybe he's met a few of them, but he hasn't been to Rome and seen this, this group of people that would gather around uh, God's word and that would worship and share meals together and remember what Jesus has done. He doesn't know them in a way that, that, that I know you guys, and yet he has this incredible love for them. He's writing to them with such compassion and longing that they would know Jesus that it, it can only be described as love. He loves them. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He loves them because they're loved by God. There's, a, there's an alignment that's taking place in Paul's life where the things that God loves, he loves. Where the things that uh, God says are true, he says are true. There's this conforming that is going on that, that you and I are longing for, that we're actually praying for each other for. That we would be transformed and conformed into God's image. And it's happening with Paul. You see it. People he doesn't know, he loves. He longs for them to know Jesus and to trust him. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's Paul? Who's he writing to? What is he writing about? We spent a couple weeks in verses 16 through 17. This is uh, often used in, uh, in a proclamation of the gospel as like the centerpiece of what is truth. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Some of uh, Noah and I, some of our favorite hip-hop groups are part of 116, which is Romans 1, 16, and it's this proclamation of the truth. This is the key cornerstone of what Paul is writing to the Romans. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why is he not ashamed of this gospel? Because it's the only thing that can save. It's the only thing that has the power to take what was dead and breathe life into it that can take what is mourning and give it joy. Like, this is the gospel. This is the good news that has the power to save. And Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. Who is this gospel for? He says it's for everyone who believes. We all have access to this today. That is so sweet. When you think about it, like, some of the coolest rides, you have to be a certain height to ride them. Now, I don't like rides, but I know some of you do. That's why I'm using this illustration. There's certain rides that are so awesome and so exciting, but you have to be a certain height to ride them. I'm telling you that this gospel is so good and so true and so miraculous, and nobody has to be a certain height. You don't have to be a certain skin color. You don't have to have a certain history. You don't have to be born in a particular place. You get to come freely to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The best thing in the world. Better than any ride. Better than any food. I know some of you are foodies. It's the best thing in the world. It's the gospel of God for salvation to anyone who would believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. How is this possible? It's possible for us to take hold of this gospel by faith. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul has introduced us to the gospel that saves, and for the rest of the chapter he points to what we need saving from. 
And so we're going to spend several weeks in August looking at what have we been saved from. And here's why we have to do that. What we have been saved from is, is the lies, the idolatry, the brokenness of this world. And it is prevalent. It's prevalent. It sneaks into to some of our preaching. It sneaks into our daily lives. It sneaks in through our TVs and our electronics. And it sneaks in just through, through our own conversations. Like, it's prevalent, the lies that Christ has died to save us from. To rescue us to Himself, to the truth. And so we need to take some time and just be like, that, that's not true. That actually stands against what God says. And I've submitted myself to what God says, and so I'm going to stand against that too. How do we do that in an age where it seems like everything is assaulting who God is? Who He has proclaimed Himself to be? And we're going to see that that there's ways that actually we go about making God into our image rather than Him making us into His image. And so we're going to spend some time over the next couple weeks. And today we begin with a, a difficult doctrine of truth. The judgment of God. The wrath of God. The punishment of God. You see, Paul introduces us to what, what we're saved from, and what we're saved from is both our own sin and the wrath of God that it deserves. So often we think that God is just taking us out of sin so that we can walk in righteousness, and He is, absolutely. He has saved us from our sins, but He's also saved us from Himself. He saved us from His wrath, from His punishment, by putting that punishment on Christ. The salvation that the gospel brings delivers us from the just wrath of God we deserve. And we're going to see that it's because of our ungodly and unrighteous suppression of truth. I know. It's weighty. The only one in here that wants to hear this is Isaac. And he said he loves talking about the wrath of God. So we'll work through that. Alright? But how sweet that we get to do that together. How sweet that we get to sit under God's Word and say, God, I want to see you in all of your beauty. I don't want you to withhold anything from me. So if you say that your wrath and your judgment is good, will you show me? Will you work by the power of your Spirit to show me how that's true and good for me and for those that are perishing? Because I want to go with you and, and with your proclamation of truth, and I need to hear it first. So let's ask God to do that. I know it's a long intro but we're, we desperately need the Spirit. We need the Spirit this morning, so let's pray and ask Him to do that. God, give us eyes to see this morning. Help us to see You as You have given Yourself to us, Lord, in Your Word. Help us to see you as Father, Son, and Spirit, as the triune God that, that work together for your glory, that have worked out your plan through creation, through fall, through redemption, through restoration, Lord. This is the, your story. 
And yet you've called us to be part of it, Lord. So may we see you and may we respond. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I pray that even as we, as we sit under your word and as the, the devil would want to lie, Lord, that you would protect. God, that you would speak truth, that your spirit would speak to us. So that we, in, instead of hearing condemnation, would, would see wrath that was poured out on Christ for us. God, that we would experience the love of Christ today. And that love would propel us to go. To be a people who proclaim the fullness of the gospel. That it's bad news for us because we're sinners. And it's good news for us because sinners like us are saved by grace by God himself in the person of Jesus. Help us to believe it today. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things in particular to look at today. We're only going to be in verse 18. We'll, we'll see how it plays out, but uh, the first is the righteous wrath of God. I want all of us to see it. I need to see it. I'm struggling with it because uh, it, it's, just, it's a hard thing for us to grasp and to understand and to sit under and say, how is that good? I want us to see that uh, the, the wrath of God is upon us because of our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. And, and then I want us to see that that plays itself out when we suppress the truth. So we're just going to look at that this morning. The righteous wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is, is God's judgment and God's penalty. It's the way that He punishes those who don't follow in his ways. I want to read you a story from 1 Chronicles. This is a story about David. David was a man after God's own heart. Now, that doesn't mean that David had God's own heart. There are definitely points in David's life where he directly sinned against God. And David received punishment for his sin. And in 1 Chronicles Chapter 21, we see some of David's disobedience and the wrath of God poured out upon David for his disobedience. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1 says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. What? Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. That seems weird, like, that just seems like a natural thing that somebody would do to take, a, take an account. How many people are with us? How many people are for us? How many people are in the land? That's what a census is. And yet, what, what we're seeing here is actually David, who has been called to trust and have faith in God, is actually going to put his faith in the numbers that would come back from this census. And so... Satan is actually stirring this in David's heart. A, a deviation from a trust in who God is and what he has said into maybe even God's people. Like, just a slight little, slight little deviation, a slight little coming off course. 
But it's clearly the work of Satan, as Scripture says. Verse 2 says, So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the king, all of them my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. Man, Joab is a, is a good, good servant, good follower. How do we know? Because he actually speaks some truth to David. David the king, over everything that he would see, Joab says, hey, do, we really, do we really need to do this? Is this wise? Shouldn't we trust God? And yet, David prevails. The king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. So they take the census. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And then in 14... Sorry, verse 11. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him. Who sent me? Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. 14, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. 15, and God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it, but as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. What we have here is uh, the punishment for David's disobedience. We forget very quickly that our God is holy. That our God demands perfect righteousness. That righteousness is not just perfect uh, obedience, not just perfect uh, actions, but it's even perfect motivations of the heart that would drive us to walk in righteousness, righteous actions. What we have here is David wavering in his trust and faith in God. And because of his lack of trust that leads to disobedient actions, God judges him. And God pours out his wrath. And this is one isolated story in a myriad of stories where the people of God, when they walk in disobedience, actually reap the wrath of God. Verse 14, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. That number just boggles the mind. There's a a right way that God has called us to live. And when we do not walk in his ways, he has wrath stored up. Stored up for those who would disobey him. Easy ones are the story of Sodom and Gomorrah who rejected God's way and lived their own way. God destroyed them. All of them. 
And we, we just kind of see that as, yeah, that's just, that's that crazy story. That's a crazy story. And it's a true story that if we do not walk in God's ways, we deserve the wrath of God. Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. How is it righteous? How does the slaughter of 70,000 Israelites, God's people, seem righteous? How is it righteous for him to wipe two cities, or maybe one city, I don't know, I'm not sure about the geography, but how to, just to wipe them all off the face of a map. How is that righteous? Well, here's how it's righteous. Right now, you might have a definition of what is righteous in your head. But our definition of righteous is actually God. Period. That's it. God is righteous. He alone is righteous. So if we look to anything else and say that that's righteous and we're trying to compare God to that standard, then we're wrong. We look at what God has done. How has He punished sin? How has He punished disobedience? Sometimes He does it by annihilating multitudes of people. And we have to look and we have to say, that is righteous. We don't get to take our idea of righteousness and define that God is either righteous or unrighteous. No, God can only be righteous. He has said that He is righteous. He alone is righteous. He alone is good. He alone is love. Do we believe that? Listen, we, we spent some time in the prayer confession saying, Lord, I submit, I submit to Your truth. Even as I wrestle with it, even as it's hard for me to understand, at the end of the day, after I've said, Lord, that, that, I'm having a hard time with that, and, and you've said, that's who I am, do I rest there? Or do I rebel and war against that? Is God righteous in His wrath? Yes. Is God righteous in His punishment for sin? Yes. How do we know? Because God is righteous. Everything that we know about righteousness stems from that. The problem is that when we take that truth, that God is righteous, and we begin to suppress it or manipulate it or change it into what you and I think, we are, we are actually sinning against God. When I say that that can't be God because that's not good, I'm sinning against God. I'm calling Him a liar. And He doesn't lie. He's true. He's just. He's righteous. And His wrath is righteous. The God who created the universe is good. You want to see some goodness? Man, we have this. This is awesome. We, I know it's awesome because you guys get distracted all the time. And yet, we're going to stay here because this is good and this is what God's given us and it's sweet. And we get to look out and we get to see, God, you created all of these things and you are good. Man, you're righteous. It's crazy how all of these things work together. And sometimes we get to see some really cool clouds. Sometimes we get to see, I know the birds, I've seen them because your heads all turn together. 
But we get to watch that and we get to see God's righteousness displayed, His goodness displayed right in front of us. And if we didn't have this awesome place, we could look around and we could see each other and we could see that, man, God, you are righteous and good. It's crazy that you, you've healed people in this room of cancer. That you have fixed marriages that were broken. That you have uh, brought the wayward child home, the prodigal son home. God, you are good. You are righteous. You alone can do that. And you have defined what goodness and righteousness is. This is the God of, who created the universe. Not only do we know God as creator, and so we know that he's righteous and good, we also know God as Lord and King. Which means that what he says, what he declares, what he decrees, is the way that we're going to live. It's, it's, that's the law. Think about Robin Hood, right? And the decrees that were sent out from, from the, the monarchy. That was the law. And they could do whatever they wanted. Now, here's the thing. They weren't God, so they were not righteous, and they were not good. Even the best ones were not fully righteous or fully good. There's only one who is fully righteous and good, and that is God, our King, our Lord. A good God, a good King, a good Lord, He punishes evil. He punishes evil to establish and esteem goodness in the kingdom. If there's no punishment for evil, there won't be any goodness. Can we all agree with that? Like, if evil doesn't get punished because we're evil and because we're sinners, we're just going to keep on doing it. But a good king, a good parent, a good boss, a good teacher is going to punish evil. But we have an ultimate king, King Jesus, who punishes evil, and that's what we want. Even as we're evil ourselves, we long for a safety of a king who's going to punish evil and promote the goodness and the righteousness in the land. It's been the promise of God from the very beginning that He would promote goodness. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The goodness of God is seen in His faithfulness to His promises. Both His promises of blessing and His promises of curse. We have a hard time with that. I have a hard time. Maybe I'm projecting on all of you. I have a hard time with that. Right? To, to see the goodness of God as he punishes. Now, if I think they're evil, oh, God's good in punishing them. But if I don't see them as evil, I have a real hard time with God. And yet, he's clearly said that all of us are evil. All of us have fallen short of his righteousness, his goodness, his way of living. And so all of us deserve His wrath. How have we gotten to there? How did we get to deserving His wrath? Well, uh, as you look at verse 18 in Romans, it says, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now again, because we have um, a separation of righteousness and God in our heads, and we, we see them as two different things, we actually view these two um, statements, these two adjectives as different things. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. But you cannot separate the two things. You can't. We just said God is righteous. So if you're ungodly, you're immediately unrighteous. If you're unrighteous, you're ungodly. But we put so much on the action. We put so much on righteousness being what I can see in someone, in the way that they're behaving, and yet God's saying it's way more than that. It's ungodliness. When you reject God, it's going to be, it is unrighteous immediately, and it's going to lead to works of unrighteousness. Behavior that is unrighteous. Behavior that is destructive. Behavior that is outside of His covenant promise to us. And when we get there, now, now we actually deserve His wrath and His punishment. The wrath of God. It's been it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There's a dichotomy at work here. There's heaven and then there's man. Right? God, who is righteous and good, is in heaven. Man, we we've already rejected him in the garden. He's given us his ways and his truth. And Adam and Eve. Rejected it. They rejected. I, I know you said that. Just don't eat from this tree. But man, it seems like that would be good too. Let's try that. And Adam is the one who's called out. Like he, Eve ate the apple. Adam's the one who's called out for his sin. Both of them sinned against God. And yes, Satan was there and he was manipulating. But it was their choice to rebel against God. They rebelled against God. They were ungodly. That led to unrighteous deeds. Disobedience. Lack of trust and faith. And so this unrighteousness and this ungodliness of men deserve the wrath of a holy and just and true God. The punishment that you and I deserve. You see, before we get to any behavior, before we get to anything that you and I would see and say, oh, that's, un that's unrighteous, that's bad. Murder, that's bad. Killing, that's bad. Lying, not as bad, but bad still. Which is just not true. All of it is, is equally ungodly. Therefore, it is equally unrighteous. But before we get there, God, before we get to the behavior, God's dealing with the heart. He's dealing with the heart. The heart of Adam and Eve that would say, I don't trust you. I'm going to live my own way. So what do you and I need? Do we need better behavior? Yeah, we need better behavior. But first and foremost, we need a better heart. We need a heart that would trust Him. A heart that would say, God, you are God. You are righteous. 
You are good, and I don't know anything other than that. And I'm not going to tell you who you should be because that would make my life easier and my life better. God, you've given me your word. I know who you are. I don't read it because I don't want to sometimes. I run from it. I run from church. I run from my, my family and my friends because I know that they, they're probably going to point me back to what is good and true and righteous, which is you. And so there's times where I run from it, and yet, God, you're so kind. And you've given us your word so that we can know who you are. And so, God, what I need is I need a new heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, Paul, in another epistle, speaks about certain people having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof in 2 Timothy 3.5. They talk about God. They seem to be interested in God. They might have prayed to God, but their lives were denying it. And therefore, it was not real. You must never separate righteousness from godliness or godliness from righteousness. These two things must always go together. There is no such thing as godliness without righteousness. I would therefore lay great stress and emphasis upon that. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through Romans, and if you think we're going slow, it was like 18 years. Sunday nights. It was crazy. It was a long time. We're going to go a little faster than that. Not much. But, but because of that, he's got all these great insights. Like he, He's the one who, who pointed me to the fact that we try to separate godliness and righteousness. And that when we flip them, right, we try to separate unrighteousness and ungodliness. How do we do that? How do we do that? We suppress the truth as it says at the end of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We suppress the truth instead of submit to the truth. That's so true. If I hear a hard thing, I actually try to, I try to push it out rather than submitting to it. Like that's my natural instinct. And it takes a miracle, the work of the Spirit, to change my heart so that if I hear something that, that I'm having a hard time with, I would actually go to God's Word and say, God, I submit to you, even as, my, even as I'm having a hard time, even as I'm struggling, because I know that you're true. I know that you're good. I know that you're righteous. We suppress instead of submit. You see, suppression of the truth leads to idolatry, to worship of something other than the one true God. There's so many ways that we do that. So many. And, and that's what the rest of chapter one is going to just flesh out. Like, how are the ways, what are the ways that you and I suppress the truth, that we actually practice idolatry, worshiping something that God either created or, or something that we created? Instead of worshiping the Creator, the one true God, it leads to idolatry. There's many kinds of idolatry. It can be worship of a made-up God. Now, before you jump to Zeus or Osiris or uh, I'm trying to think of a Loki, a Norse god, right? Before you start jumping to some made-up God. 
I want you to re- remember that anything that we would deviate from who God has said that He is, any way that you or I would change one little, one little snippet of who God has said He is, we are making up a new God. We're making a God that actually fits into our conception of who He is rather than who He has said. So I'm not talking like Disney magical, like crazy God. Like uh, what's Mushu, right? The, the dragon in, in uh, Mulan. Is that? Yeah, anyways. I should have written it down. I need to do better research. But I'm not talking like this crazy uh, false religion, and yet I am talking this crazy false religion. Like any way that you and I would say, God, that wrath thing, that's not good. And there's no way I can get behind that to say that your wrath and your punishment is good. So I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to downplay that. I'm going to defer to others when, when they would come to me and say, but if you say that you believe God's Word and it says that, that we deserve His wrath because of our ungodliness and our unrighteousness, and, and then I see that His wrath is both uh, the, the temporary wrath that is taking place in His Word as, as people suffer the consequences of their sin, and it says that there's a, a, an eternal wrath that's coming, like where God is going to judge and people are going to be condemned. I have a hard time with that. And I don't think that that's true, so I'm just going to deny that fact. We've created a new religion. We've actually practiced worshiping another God, a God that you and I have created rather than the one who has given himself to us. And that's really hard because there's a lot of things that we see about God where we, we're like, man, if I was God, I would do that differently. Good news, you're not God. Right? I mean, that's good news. We only have one God, and he's good, and he's righteous, and he's true, and he doesn't waver like you and I. And he doesn't decide one thing one day and another thing another day. No, he is consistent. And he's righteous and pure and holy. And you know what that righteous and pure and holy God has done? He's declared that his wrath will be poured out. And yet, he's given us a way for us to come and not suffer the wrath of God. He's given his son to come to the cross and suffer the wrath of God in your place. It doesn't get any better than that. And if I'm not preaching the wrath of God, if I'm not declaring the wrath of God, if I'm not proclaiming it to to lost people, then we're not seeing what Jesus did on the cross. And we're making Him into something else that He isn't. And we're preaching a false gospel. And we're worshiping a false God. We're practicing a false religion. It seems like that's simplistic, I know, but, but when you boil it down, that's true. Unless I come to God in the way that He has given to me, I'm not coming to God. And so we try to suppress the truth with idolatry. It can be the worship of a made-up God. It can be the worship of self and others. 
Now, they're probably the same thing. You're just turning yourself into a god or turning someone else into a god that you would worship. But, but this one's played out a lot more in our society right now. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Say that, but we Christians, we like to just change a couple things about God. So that's being played out pretty often, too. But this idolatry of self, it's easy to get caught up in. Culture just screams it. Like you're the most important person in the world. And if you're not thinking that, then you're wrong. Christianity says, no, there is a God who is holy and righteous and true, and he is the most important being in all of creation and the universe. And so we submit to that. And then he says, and actually everyone else is who you are called to serve and who you are called to love. So this idea that you're the most important just becomes flattened on the curve. There's one God and then there's everyone else and we get to serve and love each other in those ways. So I don't have to fight for your love or your affection. I already have everything that I need in Christ. And then I get to go and I get to serve. Like that's the beauty of the truth that you and I believe and preach and sing But this idolatry is the way that we suppress the truth. That's why, that's why God, when He gives us Himself in Exodus, He begins with this, You shall have no other gods before Me. No other gods before Me. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth and you should not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's, that's who God has told us who he is. The CSB Study Bible has this note. It says, because of human willfulness, People's knowledge of God became clouded and their thinking became darkened, which we get to in the rest of our reading today. Without contact with God, the human heart loses contact with reality, misses the purpose of one's existence, ignores God, and becomes ungrateful. People are supposed to glorify God as God, but instead find all sorts of created objects to worship. Part of the wrath of God is revealed in humanity's loss of intelligent thinking. Paul's writing this. And he had just said, like, I am unashamed of the gospel of God. And he knows that to begin that gospel, to begin that proclamation, has to be the bad news that you and I are ungodly and unrighteous and we need a Savior. He knows where he's going with this thing. And he's saying, I'm not ashamed of it because the power of God is seen in the gospel, in the work of Jesus, that he would redeem and save those who are ungodly, those who are unrighteous, that would come to him and put their trust and their faith in Jesus. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We talked about this when we looked at Psalm 19 a couple weeks ago. The idea that God has given us himself in nature. like We we can't deny that there's a creator, that there's something powerful. This, This proclamation that God is real. As we look at all of his creation. But here's the deal. While that is, a, that is truth, and it is revelation enough to condemn us, it is not revelation enough to save us. There are many people who would acknowledge a God who is out there, who created, and yet that, that alone, that knowledge alone does not save them. If there is a God who is created who has created, and he is righteous and good and punishes wickedness, then that leaves all of us in a bad place. In a place where we can't fix ourselves. We can't save ourselves. The God of creation has left us with no excuse. The God of the gospel has given us salvation through his son, Jesus. You see, suppression leads to wrath, but submission leads to salvation. Submitting to God. Trusting that what he says is true. This is what we're taking hold of. Because God didn't end in, in his revelation, in his proclamation, saying you're just you're, you're stuck. You're in need of a Savior. He also came and provided the Savior in himself, in Jesus, the Son, who took on human flesh, became like us, suffered every temptation, Every persecution, he was fully human. He knows what it means to have heartbreak. He knows what it means to feel abandoned. He knows all of the things that you're experiencing, he has experienced. And what did that that God-man do? That God-man, Jesus Christ, came and he suffered death for you and for me. And in that death, the wrath of God is poured out. The wrath of God. If there was no wrath of God, there would be no need for a cross. But the cross points to the justice of God. The wrath of God being poured out on someone, just not you, if you are in Christ. Though you deserve it. Though I deserve it. It was poured out on the Son who didn't deserve it, who didn't earn it like you and I have. This God received the full wrath of God in your place. This cross satisfies the wrath of God for those who are in Christ. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, that is why, my friends, it is almost a greater injustice to the cross to sentimentalize it than to deny it. If you do not see the wrath of God when you look at the cross of Calvary's hill, it is very certain that you do not see the love of God either. It is there that you see the wrath of God revealed. What does it mean? It means that God's attitude towards sin is such that He cannot pretend He has not seen it. He cannot just say, very well, I will not punish you. God's attitude to sin demanded the death of His only begotten Son. 
God's hatred of it, His abhorrence of it, His determination to punish it, His righteous demand upon it was such that Christ had to come to this world not to tell us that God is love. God had said that repeatedly throughout the prophets and others. That was already known. But to bear the wrath of God against sin. God must punish sin. The cross proves that. The cross would never have happened but for that. We cannot preach the love of God unless we speak about, believe, and trust in the wrath of God. There's actually a punishment for sin. When we were worshiping earlier, man, I was thinking about it. I was like, what are we going to sing 10,000 years and then forevermore? Like, what's so, like, it's good. But I think I'm going to get. Like, I get tired after an hour and a half. I don't know about 10,000 years and then forevermore. You know what I think? I think we're going to get to heaven and we're going to, those who are in Christ are going to realize the punishment that Christ took upon himself, the wrath of God that he bore in our place, and we won't have to, like, try to figure it out, or we won't have uh, all of these different things blocking our complete understanding of it. We're going to see it. We're going to see the Lamb that was slain in our place. And and the magnitude of the wrath of God that was poured out on Christ, even as maybe, I I don't know, it looks like we're going to see the wrath of God poured out for those who are not in Christ at the end. There's a promise that that those who are in Christ will will, will not receive the wrath of Christ, or wrath of God. But those who are outside of Christ, they will experience His wrath. I think when we see that, we're going to understand the magnitude of the love of God. That He would in our place be condemned and die. That He would suffer and be broken. That the wrath of God would be poured out on Him instead of me. And man, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing like I've never sung before. And I've sung before a couple times. You guys have heard me. But there's going to be a day where I'm just going to sing and I'm going to belt it and I'm going to cry and there's going to be tears of joy, tears of sadness, tears just, I can't handle this. What God has done in my place. If we don't preach, and I say preach and you guys are like, well, I'm glad I'm not the preacher. No, I'm talking about all of us. Like we all have to believe and then to speak this truth. God's wrath is real. He's holy. He's godly. He's God. He's righteous. I'm ungodly and I'm unrighteous. I deserve His wrath. All of humanity deserves His wrath. Like we're gonna we're gonna see more the ways that we suppress the truth, the way that we've rebelled against God, the way that we're currently doing that in our culture and in our society right now today. And it's an epidemic. Like it's worse than COVID. It's, it's in, in everyone's household. And yet, because you and I, if we would proclaim Christ and say, I am in Christ, He has suffered wrath in my place. So today, we get to sing. We get to rejoice in a God who has shown us what love is. Not a cheap grace. A very costly grace that you and I have experienced. If you haven't experienced that grace this morning, 
The wrath of God is real. The only escape that you have is not in your doing better, trying harder. It's not even in in your saying I'm sorry. It's not in your brokenness. Because there's a, there's a guilt that sometimes we, we see and experience and we call that repentance and it's not the same thing. Repentance is saying, God, You are God and I am not. And You have given me a right way to live and I, and I haven't lived that way. Will You forgive me and will You, because of what Christ has done and the, the wrath that He has borne in my place, will You take my sin from me and will You give me righteousness so that I can walk in Your way? That's gotta be the that's gotta be the final thing. Like we need to desire to walk in his way. A desire to obey the king. Otherwise, we're just trying to get out of the wrath, and that's nobody wants that. Like, of course we're trying to get out of that. But a true faith in Christ says, Yes, Lord, I take my sin, take my shame, but also give me your righteousness that I may walk in it. For your glory. Because you're worthy of glory and honor and praise forever and ever. If you're waiting today and you're like, "Ah, we'll see what he says next week. Don't wait. Don't wait. The wrath of God is real. If you think that your friend is waiting, don't wait to go and tell them about the real wrath of God that has been taken for those who are in Christ by Christ. They won't know what love is if you're just kind to them. This is for me, man. Like, like my family won't just know that I love them unless I tell them how they have been loved by Jesus. I actually can't love them. God has defined what love is in His Son who came and bore the wrath of God in my place. If I'm doing anything other than telling them that good news, I'm not really loving them. And I'm the biggest culprit of this. Most of you know, because I tell you I love you all the time. Don't wait. Don't wait to go. Maybe today you're feeling like, I don't know, man. I feel like God's been calling me to go tell someone. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's uh, Zimbabwe. Maybe it's Iceland. Like Maybe it's Denver, I don't, don't wait. Kids, talk to your parents, but also don't wait. Like we don't, we're not promised tomorrow. And if the wrath of God is real, then we need to be telling each other and telling our neighbors and telling our friends and telling even our enemies because they're, if they're in Christ, they're not our enemies. This should drive us to walk in a way that is righteous, godly. This should drive us to go and tell this good news. This should drive us to remember the love of God, the love of Christ, that He would take the wrath of God in our place and that He would give us His righteousness. We can't live the same way. If this is true, and I believe it is, and you believe it is, so let's go and let's do this. Amen? God, we're so grateful that even as you bring um, 
truth that would challenge us. Lord, that we could still cling and still submit and say, God, Your way is the only way. Your way is true. You are righteous. You alone. You are good. You alone. You are love. You alone. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your spirit that is at work here today. Transforming us. Making us, making us who were dead alive in Christ Jesus. So that we too would be love. So that we too would walk in righteousness. So that we too would have hearts that were against you that have now been changed and transformed to hearts that are moldable. Soft hearts where before we had hard hearts. Hearts of flesh where before we had hearts of stone. Thank you God for the gift of salvation. Thank you God for pouring your wrath upon your son so that those who would trust and believe in him have faith in him would not experience the wrath of God but would experience the the promise of your salvation and your redemption today. Thank you, God. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us incredible boldness. May we not just, uh, may we not conform you into our image, but may we be conformed into your image. For your sake, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.